The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Last week we talked about Christ's view of Scripture and we got you know through most of it. Um, tonight we're going to talk about the doctrine of the Word of God and I have another handout for that. But I'd like to finish up what we discussed last time. Um, briefly. My basic idea, the basic premise that I'm trying to recommend, come on in, um, is that we would have Christ's attitude about Scripture. That's all. Whatever Christ, whatever Christ, whatever Jesus Christ thought about Scripture, that's what we should think, right? And then we went on to say, okay, uh, if that's what we're going to do, then let's find out what attitude Christ had towards Scripture. And we discussed that last time. We had some examples. And we could sum up what Jesus said about, or thought about Scripture in the phrase, what Scripture says, God says. That's really you know, where I want to come down. But, and we went over uh, a few things about that. For example, in Matthew 19, 3 uh, through 6, we talked about how uh, Jesus uh, referred to the creation account. And he said, haven't you read at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so if you go back and look in the original account, the Creator didn't say it. But in Jesus' mind, the Creator says it. What Scripture says, God says. We talked about that. Uh, we also talked about uh, the account in the bu- uh, burning bush. Uh, haven't you read what Scripture, what God said to you in the uh, account of the burning bush in Matthew 22:31? So, in other words, whatever Scripture says is coming right from God. That was Jesus' way of thinking. Then we talked about Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. He said, until heaven and earth, uh, he said, pass away, not the smallest letter or least stroke of a pen would by any means disappear from the law until everything was fulfilled. Jots and tittles, the King James Version talks about that. Jots, I think, is the English version of yod, the little, the little apostrophe letter, the ya sound in Hebrew. He said, all of those little letters will still be there at the end of the world. Of course, none of us will be able to read them because none of us can read Hebrew, right? <laughs> Aren't you glad for translations? Aren't you glad for scholars that spend their whole lives studying Hebrew? Just parenthetically, I was talking to my Hebrew professor at Gordon-Conwell, and I was, you know, I was working hard at Hebrew, trying to understand it, and it was tough. And I said, you know, you, you went to Harvard, you got a PhD in Hebrew, you studied this stuff all your life. Can you pick up the Hebrew Bible and just read it like a newspaper? He said, I will never be able to do that. It doesn't matter how much time I put in, I will never be able to do that. So I said, well, I said, good, then I don't need to study it much harder than passing your test. You know, I, there's no need. If you tell me that, and he said, no, I wasn't meaning to discourage you, I'm just telling you. Like especially Isaiah, Jeremiah, the prophets, they use words that are only used in that one verse, and you're never going to memorize all those words. And so they're constantly right there with the lexicon, looking up words, and that's the way that is. But all of that to say, aren't you glad you have... Not one, but probably ten good English translations to work with. Uh, I think that's phenomenal. Uh, it's, that's, that's encouraging. By the way, did you know that there are, there's a scriptural support for the translation of Scripture? You know, you know that there is. 
uh, in the in Gospel of Matthew, he's constantly saying they will call him Emmanuel, which when translated means God with us. So he translates scripture right there for us. And so there's a scriptural support for the process of translation. Uh, and it happens numerous times. Uh, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which when translated is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's right there in Scripture. So the translation is going to be part of it and we are going to be working with translations. At any rate, um, Jesus said, until heaven and earth disappear, we're going to be working with the Hebrew. Uh, he also, um, we went through these literal, not spiritualized. That was the example of Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish, so the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What does that mean? Jonah was a real person to Jesus. Jonah was a real historical person. The story of Jonah is not a myth. It's not an allegory. It's not a story of Israel and their relation to the Gentile nations and all that. It may be that in one sense, but it actually historically happened. How do we know that? Well, he likened his own resurrection to it. He likened his own resurrection. So, you know, it'd be like saying, well, just as such and such happened in the Grimm's fairy tale or Mother Goose, so I, well, you know, it doesn't work. It has to have been a historical event or the analogy falls apart. And so Jesus saw the story of Jonah as historical, and so should we. Um, and we talked about the scripture being united in Matthew 22, 35 through 40. He said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. He saw the scripture as essentially united. The 39 books of the Old Testament that he was working with at that t time spoke with one united voice. There were not 39 different books. It was one, uh, one united message from God. Also, the scripture was sufficient for life and godliness. We talked about Matthew 4, 4, in which he says, uh, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so that's what we're going to live on. Um, and that uh, the Scriptures are Christ-centered. Now, did we talk about that, uh, the Scriptures being Christ-centered? Did we get to that last time or not? I think we were just about there when we, when we finished. So let's, let's take a look at that. Um, yeah. Okay, let's look at Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 17. I know we touched on this, but I think it bears uh, repeating. Hi, welcome. Come on in. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 17. If somebody would read this, I would appreciate it. Luke 4, 14 through 17. I should have had you read further, which is exactly what you did up through verse 21. Jesus said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
What was he claiming by saying that? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives. He said, today this scripture is fulfilled. What is this scripture? What was he reading? He was reading Isaiah, which had been written six centuries before. And what was he claiming then? He was claiming to be Messiah. He was claiming to be the fulfillment of scripture. Can you imagine the impact that must have had on that synagogue in Nazareth? And the funny thing was they accepted it. They, they spoke well of him. They, 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 they were amazed at the gracious words that were coming from his lips. But it was when he said that he had a worldwide mission to fulfill, including the Gentiles, and that he would be rejected by his own people, that's when they wanted to kill him. So it's amazing how quickly the people, the fickle people, went from speaking well of him and graciously to wanting to push him off a cliff and kill him. It was a matter of moments, really. And yet Jesus, his time was not, had not yet come. But Jesus was conscious that his life, that he himself was there in direct fulfillment of Scripture. And he did this again and again, didn't he? Uh, if you look at John chapter 5, verse 39 through 47, we'll see this again. In John chapter 5, 39 through 47. Now here he is... Uh, <laughs> He is dealing with people who are very angry and upset at him for breaking the Sabbath. Do you notice how many of Jesus' healings were on the Sabbath? He constantly was healing on the Sabbath, all the time healing on the Sabbath. And he was challenging their thinking. And, and so um, when they, they uh, brought, wanted to bring charges really against him at this point, he said, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. Again, another tendency of Jesus, not just to heal on the Sabbath, but if you think that's bad, how about this? He always goes beyond a little more. He says, I'm not just breaking the Sabbath. I am equal to the Father. And so my Father's working, and I too am working. We're actually both working today. My Father's working, and I'm working. And so they wanted to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father making himself equal with God. And so Jesus begins to testify about this. And this is one of his extended teachings in John's gospel. And he's giving evidence of why he can make these kind of statements. And one of the evidences he gives for himself is the scripture. The scripture testifies to Jesus. And he says that. If you look at verse um, 39 and following, he's speaking to his enemies and he says this, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify to me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise that comes from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. <laughs> now, again, you have to, it's, maybe it just flows over you, but you don't realize what a shocking statement that would have been to the Jews. He wrote about you? Moses? Yes, he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? If you don't believe the scriptures, you won't believe me. But if you do believe the scriptures, you believe. Now, if you go back, you go back to verse 39. He says, you diligently study the scriptures. And they did every day. 
and yet they missed the point, didn't they? What does that teach you about scripture study? It's hard work, okay? Do you think that we could exceed the scribes and Pharisees in terms of diligent study of the scripture? Hours spent per week, let's put it that way. And yet, they missed the whole point, didn't they? And what was the whole point of scripture? What was the whole point of it all? It was all pointing to Jesus. The spirit of Christ, or the spirit of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. Everything about the prophets pointed to Jesus. Welcome. And so, uh, he says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Actually, you don't. As a matter of fact, if you diligently study the scriptures and don't end up with faith in Christ, you don't have eternal life, even though you have the scriptures. And that's the whole point that he's making. These are the scriptures that testify about me. So there, in t- twice, in one short amount of time, he says that scriptures testified about him. He believed that the scriptures were written about him. And then finally, in the post-resurrection instructions, we see it in Luke 24. So turn over there. Yeah, you can see how much Jesus inflamed the Jews by saying these kinds of things. This was really shocking to them, wasn't it? I mean, think of it. Think that a regular flesh and blood human being could say that scriptures that were 15 centuries old were written about him. Moses wrote about him. And he went beyond that. Remember when he said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. So Jesus was constantly testifying like this. But here he said the written scripture testified about him. Now, in Luke 24, we've got these disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember the story? It's resurrection morning. And they're walking along and they are very dejected. They're very discouraged. They're very downcast as they walk with the risen Lord. Isn't that funny? I mean, how out of step are we with God? Here they are walking with Jesus. What would any of you have given to take that walk with those two disciples and with the resurrected Christ on the morning, on the first Easter morning? Wouldn't that have been something? And they're depressed. They're discouraged. They're frustrated. They're down. They're downcast. And so Jesus says to them in verse 25, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Does that speak? Does it sound like gentle Jesus, meek and mild? How foolish you are, he says to them. He basically rebukes them. What does he rebuke them for? Why does he rebuke them? What is their problem? Unbelief of what? What did they not believe? They didn't believe the scriptures. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Do you see that? He said, here I am. And and then, okay, here I am over here. And again, here I am in this verse. And then you'll see me over here. In Psalm 16, my resurrection. In Psalm 22, my crucifixion. You're going to find me again and again and again in all of the writings. And then he does it again at the end of the chapter. In verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So there he's, that, that's, that's the summary he gives, really, of all the writings that they had. The Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. There are three categories of Old Testament writings. There's the Law, there's the Prophets, and the Writings, the Wisdom Writings. 
And so Jesus hits all three of those when he calls it Psalms. But that would include Job and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the wisdom writings. And he said that all of those things were written about me, also in Moses and prophets. Then in verse 45, I love that verse, he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. You ought to pray that regularly for yourself. When you go to have a quiet time, you ought to say, you ought to say based on Luke 24:45, open my mind so that I might understand the scriptures. Because the Pharisees and scribes diligently studied and they never got it, did they? And so you need to go like a spiritual beggar, humbly to God and say, I will miss the point. I will not understand if you do not open my mind. But if you open my mind, I will understand. And what will we find when he opens our mind? We'll find Christ. We will find him more than anything else. Yes, you'll find how to have a a good marriage or raise your kids or be a good employee or lead a profitable life. You'll find those things too. But more than anything, you'll find Christ. And he says this, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Very interesting. That is in the Old Testament. Can you tell me where? Can you tell me where repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem? Can you find that in the Old Testament? Rhetorical question. But uh, test yourself and see. Would you be able to find out where that, those prophecies are? Where would you look to find them? And you say, oh, how I wish I'd been in his seminary. Not in Acts class with Pastor Andy Davis, but in a real, with a real teacher, Jesus Christ himself. Forty days he had with them to show them what was written about himself in the scriptures. And he said, you are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. All right, so Christ fulfilled Scripture. You see the three examples. At the beginning of his ministry, he said it, when he rolled open the scroll of Isaiah and said, today the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In the middle and throughout in many places in his ministry, he said, I am fulfilling Scripture. Moses wrote about me. You diligently study the Scriptures, but they testify about me. Many times we could have had other examples. And then at the very end, after he had risen from the dead, he does the exact same thing twice in Luke with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and then all of his disciples in the upper room. He shows them again and again how the scriptures testify about him. Christ lived a life directly in fulfillment of scripture. And then finally we see that Christ submitted to scripture even to death. Look at uh, Matthew 26, 52 through 54. Okay, this is um, Christ's arrest. And uh, Peter, it's a, it doesn't say who it is in Matthew, but we know it's Peter from one of the other accounts. The men steps forward, sees Jesus, and arrested him. Verse 51, with that one of Jesus' companions, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. We find out later that in I mean, one of the other accounts that Jesus healed his ear and he says other things to Peter. But at this moment, he says here in Matthew's account, verse 52, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call him my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Now, wouldn't that have been something? What a display. Of course, you'd never see it because you wouldn't have been born. The world would have ended right there. Because what's the point going on? If he doesn't go to the cross, history ends right at this moment. All right? I can do it, and they'd come, and they would wipe them out 
Romans are nothing before 12 legions of angels. We would take care of them, but quick. They would come and say, yes, sir, and they would do whatever I told them to do. But how then would the Scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus basically walked a very narrow path from this point to his death. There was no turning left or right. There was Everything had been written. It was all charted out. There was no latitude. Many of the prophecies of Scripture concentrate on this part of Christ's life right to his death and resurrection. Most of them, I think, actually. More than any of the others, they concentrate on specific events surrounding his crucifixion and his resurrection. But what is he saying to Peter when he says that? What, what attitude does Christ have towards Scripture here as revealed here? He had a choice, didn't he? He had a choice. And what was on the one hand? Right. But what's the benefit for him? Life. He would not die on the cross. He would not suffer. He would not be arrested. He would not be humiliated or shamed. All of those things he would not have to go through, but rather would be gloriously taken on the shoulders of 12 legions of angels back up to heaven where he started, right? That's what's in it for him on the left-hand side. All right? But that would involve breaking Scripture. And so as he had the choice, he would rather walk that narrow road, go down, be humiliated, suffer, and die than disobey Scripture. He would rather do all those things than break the Scriptures. Furthermore, Jesus had earlier said, Scripture cannot be broken. It cannot happen. So I will not do that. That's his attitude towards Scripture. And it challenges me. Jesus also quoted Scripture to his accusers. After they arrested him, they brought him before the, uh, the Sanhedrin. They brought, priests, uh, they brought him before the priests and they brought f- false witnesses to come accuse him. And they couldn't get anybody on such short notice to get their stories together. And so they're trying to cloak the whole thing in civility. They're trying to cloak it in righteousness, but it's rotten top to bottom. He was the only perfectly innocent man who ever lived. And so they're trying to kill him, but they just can't do it. Finally, the high priest stands up and says right to Jesus. And by the way, this is illegal. You cannot be accused out of your own mouth. You have to have witnesses. On the testimony of two or three witnesses alone will a man be put to death says in the book of Deuteronomy. Anyway, it's like, Jesus, help us out. We're having a hard time in the middle of the night getting our witnesses together. He says, I charge you under oath by the living God, verse 63, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Now, he had said, what is this testimony they're bringing against you? Tell me about the testimony. Jesus remains silent. Direct fulfillment of prophecy. Remember in Isaiah, he said, like a lamb before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So he just kept silent about the false testimony. He's just silent. He had nothing to say. So then they say, I charge you into oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And how does he respond? Yes, it is as you say in Matthew's gospel, Jesus replied, but I tell, I say to all of you, In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a direct quotation of the Son of Man passage in the Gospel or in the book of Daniel. Direct quotation of the Son of Man passage. That's why I think the Son of Man passage is the best scripture in all the Old Testament for proving the deity of Christ because Jesus chose it to get himself killed. (laughs) He said, "You, you diligently study the scriptures, but you miss this one. Let me ask you a question. Who is the Son of Man? Who is he? Okay, 
He is Jesus, but he receives worship, but he's not the Ancient of Days. You look it up, you read it, and you try to figure out who he is. Uh, modern Judaism, ancient Judaism had no way to answer that question. Only the doctrine of the Trinity can answer the question of who the Son of Man is. And he said, in the future, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. Now, let me ask you a question. If you look at Jesus' answer, how would you categorize it? What is it? Just look at his answer by itself in verse 64. What would you call his answer? Is it a command? It's a prophecy. Is it not? Is he not talking about the future? In the future, you will see. Does Jesus ever throw away words? Every single word is perfect and accurate, right? So he's saying you're going to see something. Who's going to see that? Everybody is going to see that. Dead or alive, they will all see. They'll come out of their graves and they will see. All of them will see the glory of the Son of Man. They will all see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. And when will that happen? At the end of the world. And it's not time for that yet. Anyway, 65, the high priest tore his clothes and said he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Now look, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death. That's what got him killed. Quoting Daniel 7 got him killed. And then finally, he's breathing out scripture at the end in Matthew 27, verse 46. Verse 45, from the sixth hour into the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A direct quote of Psalm 22. Why in the world did he quote Psalm 22? Why that Psalm at that particular moment? Well, you would have to read Psalm 22 to know why. But it's in Psalm 22 that he describes the actual process of crucifixion. Many dogs have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan encircled me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. What is that talking about? That's crucifixion. And so on the cross, he says, hey, you might want to read Psalm 22 when you go home tonight. Okay? <laughs> You know, look at it. But it also accurately reflects what he was crying out at that moment. It's a perfect scripture because he was under the wrath of God as he was suffering there. And so he was in one sense, as our substitute, he was forsaken by God. And so he cries out. Uh, how many of you have seen Jesus of Nazareth, the six-hour thing they show on TV from time to time around Easter time? Have you seen it? It's really pretty good. It's really pretty good as a secular presentation. And uh, the, one of the reasons I like it is that it's not just the Bible, but they bring in other dramatic things, whereas the Jesus film, it's there. They can only ride along the Gospel of Luke, and that's exciting too and wonderful. But the thing with Jesus of Nazareth is they have other people commenting at that particular moment. And so one of his enemies stands there, and he looks up at Jesus as he's dying on the cross. And he's calling out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And they say, oh, he's calling for Elijah, which is exactly what they thought he was doing because it sounds a little bit like Elijah. And this man, who, had, who was one of his bitter enemies in the movie, was one of the Pharisees of Sanhedrin, he just, it, it just hit him. It was amazing. He said, no, he's not calling Elijah. He's quoting scripture. Right here, right now, dying on the cross. He's quoting scripture. And he was amazed, you know, because he thought he was a deceiver, a charlatan, a fake, and yet right to the end, he's still quoting Scripture. It's almost scary, you know. Uh, it is a little bit. He's saying, no, he is saturated. He lived a life saturated in the Bible. 
the Bible covered him from his miraculous birth to his substitutionary death. All of it covered in Scripture. And so he died. You know, one of his final words, in, uh, I think it was in, in Matthew's account, or in uh, Luke's account, he says, Father, into your hands uh, I commit my spirit. Right? Uh, that's a direct quote of Psalm 69, I think it is. Into your hands I commit my spirit. So he says seven things off the cross. Two of them are direct quotations of Scripture. Isn't that incredible? At any rate, Jesus would rather die than disobey Scripture. He quoted Scripture to his accusers and he breathed out Scripture to the end. Now, how important is this whole topic? Well, Jesus is the Word of God, is he not? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh. So Jesus is the Word of God. He is the living Word. In John's final vision, in Revelation 19, he sees a vision of the second coming of Christ. He, it says there, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Now, that's strong, isn't it? That's the name given to him by John, the revelation of John, the vision that he has. That is the name that he gives him at the second coming of Christ. His name is the Word of God. Now, take a minute and look at John chapter 20, and we'll see how our salvation depends on this doctrine. What do I mean by that? I mean, our salvation depends on having the same attitude towards Scripture that Jesus had. Same attitude. John chapter 20. Verse 1, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So uh, she came running to Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And they said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the, stone, reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. That's a very important line, isn't it? He saw and believed. Look at verse 9. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. A very, very important statement from John. One thing I've learned about John's gospel is that he kept out of it everything that did not focus on his purpose. He says, look, I could have brought all kinds of other things in here, all kinds of other miracles and signs that Jesus did, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. And so I look on it almost like... Uh, the weight requirements on a NASA mission. You know, I mean, everything has to justify itself to make it into John's gospel. So there's no throwaway lines here either. And so verse 9 is not a throwaway line. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. This is a very interesting thing. Verses 1 through 8 talk about a topic that we would call evidence, right? Evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is the evidence? As you look at verses 1 through 8, what is the evidence that he gives us? Physical evidence of the resurrection of Christ. The tomb is empty. That's probably the best evidence of all. What else? The, the stone is removed. The grave clothes, the, grave clothes, the linens are laying in their, in their original position. 
which is very tough to do since they're all wrapped up with gummy resin, like scraped from a, from a pine tree. So how they got the body out without disturbing the grave clothes, only God could explain. And that's why when they saw the grave clothes, they knew that the resurrection occurred because no grave robber would ever leave the grave clothes like that. And even if you wanted to get Jesus out, you have to unwrap them. And so there's all this evidence. Now, here's the thing. It's very interesting. If you look at this root here, it comes from the Latin root, uh, where we get the word video, right? What does it have to do with? Eyesight, right? Okay, how many of you have seen the empty tomb? How many of you have seen the grave clothes? The stone? The angel sitting at the head and the foot? How about the cloth folded up off by itself? How many of you have seen the evidence? How many of you believe the evidence? Is that all? All right, we're going to have a witnessing time at the end, all right? How many of you believe the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? All right, thank you. Oh, we had an instant revival there. That's amazing. I want all the names of those of you that went second time and you just came to Christ. All right, what, what is my point here? You have not seen the evidence, and yet you have believed, right? It's exactly what he says to Thomas. Look later in chapter 20. Thomas had said, you know, unless I see, look at verse 25. See what he says? Thomas said, unless I see. You see that right there? The whole seeing thing is a big deal in John chapter 20, isn't it? Unless I see, well, unless you see what? Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand in the, into his side, I will not believe. Jesus said, okay, I will grant your request. A week later, his disciples were in the house. Thomas was there. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. That's a little eerie, by the way, because Jesus wasn't there the first time when the statement had been made. It's like, okay, Thomas, I remember how you said, well, you weren't there. That's all right. I heard it. I was there. <laughs> put your finger here. See my hands. See that? See my hands. See them. Look at them. Why does he do for Thomas what he doesn't do for any of us? Why? Thomas hadn't seen. None of us have either. Why did he grant to Thomas something he didn't grant to us? Because he doubted, but many have doubted, to help his faith, but we could all abuse that faith. There you go. Because Thomas had a unique role in redemptive history that we don't play. What is the unique role of Thomas in redemptive history that none of us in this room play? He was an eyewitness apostle. And we don't get that, do we? We get the apostles. The apostles were the eyewitnesses. And what do we get? We get their testimony, right? What if we don't believe their testimony? What if we reject their authority? Well, then we don't believe. And we're still in our sins. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Believed what? Well, Thomas told us what to believe, didn't he? I believe that John 20, 28 is the climax of John's gospel. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. That's the climax. That's it. Believe what? Believe that. Believe that about Jesus. My Lord and my God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is your God? Not just God, but your God. My Lord and my God. And Jesus, instead of rebuking him, if he had not been God, instead said, because you have seen me, you have believed what the truth is, that I am your Lord and your God. Because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed and how blessed is that blessed? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see what I'm getting at? All right. How do we not see and yet believe? There's only one way. 
testimony of Scripture. It's the only way. That's why John 20, verse 9 is so important. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And so, I conclude my case here for the first half of our evening, and that's that Jesus led a life totally saturated in Scripture. What Scripture said, God said, His life was preordained by the prophecies that were written about Him. And our salvation depends on accepting Scripture's testimony about Jesus. Because apart from Scripture, we know nothing about Jesus. We know some things about God, but nothing about Jesus apart from Scripture. And so our salvation depends, absolutely depends, on this written account. Any questions about this topic, Christ's view of Scripture? Would you say that your own estimation of Scripture is as high as Jesus's? <laughs> Do you think there's anyone in this room who thinks more highly of Scripture than Jesus did? Gives it a higher place of authority? Thinks of it as more inerrant or more perfect or a better guide for life or whatever you want to say? I would say there's no one in this room that approaches Christ's level. And so therefore we all have a ways to go, don't we? <laughs> All right, but the 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 opposite, the liberal approach or the so-called moderate Christian approach is not the way to go. It's exactly the opposite way from where Jesus was. A low view of Scripture that it's a man-made book of people's own uh, ruminations and feelings about God. Uh, that is not Jesus' conviction about Scripture, not at all. So we go back to our original conviction. We want to have the exact same views and conviction of Scripture that Jesus did. All right, I'm going to pass out the syllabus and stuff for today, uh, and we'll, we're not going to get far with it, but we can begin. And this is, um, we don't have anywhere near enough of these, but I'll try to get more. Oh, by the time you get back, I don't know, Jack, you'd miss it. So why don't you just, why don't we have every other person take one, and I'll try to get some out, God willing, next time. I've got 60, so that may be enough. Is it enough? All right, then. All right, well, good. All right, I have basically taken this outline from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And you definitely will want to get this if you can. It's, it's ex expensive, maybe $35. But it's probably the most readable systematic theology that I've seen. Many of them are very tough to read and, and, and uh, inaccessible for that reason. And so we're going to be looking um, over the next week or so, tonight and God willing next time, at the doctrine of the Word of God taken from his outline. I'm going to add some things to it, but that's what we're looking at. Okay, um, what I've done is I've taken chapters 2 through 8, which I have Roman numerals 1 through 7, and just translated them down here onto your page. Um, and in there, he's talking about these things. Number one, the different forms of the Word of God. He asks the question, what are the different forms of the Word of God? Secondly, the canon of Scripture. What belongs in the Bible and what does not? Have you ever wondered about that? Have you ever wondered about the process whereby we got our 66 books of the Bible? Many have asked questions about that. We're going to talk about that tonight. Then he gives us four characteristics of Scripture and pauses to zero in on one aspect of it with inerrancy. The four characteristics of Scripture are, number one, authority. You see that? Number two, clarity. Number three, necessity. And number four, sufficiency. Okay? First of all, authority, he asks the question, how do we know that the Bible is, the, is God's Word? But I actually think he goes beyond that, and we're going to go beyond that. 
Authority literally has to do with its right to speak to us. It's right to command us. That's what it is. And if you look at the word authority, what does it remind you of if I put that box around it there? Author. So the authority of the Scripture is connected to its author. Now, we just went through Jesus' view of Scripture. Who would Jesus say is the author of Scripture? True author. So the authority of Scripture is God's authority. If it's true what Scripture says, God says, then what Scripture commands, God commands. What Scripture rejects, God rejects. What Scripture asserts, God asserts. What Scripture narrates, God narrates. That's the kind of thing. That's the authority of the Word of God. We're going to talk about other forms of authority. There are other forms of authority that we could have in our life than Scripture, but uh, the authority of Scripture. As a subset of that, he discusses inerrancy. Are there any errors in the Bible? This is obviously a very important topic. If there are errors in the Bible, things start to unravel very quickly. We're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about the issue of errors that people bring up and the topic of inerrancy. The th uh, second characteristic of Scripture is clarity. He asked the question, can only Bible scholars understand the Bible rightly? It's a very important topic. The clarity of Scripture. Is Scripture clear enough or do you need specialized training in order to access its truth? And it's not an easy question to answer. Okay, We were joking earlier about translating Hebrew. If I gave you the original autographs of Scripture, you guys would be helpless, right? So we can't snuff away scholars too quickly because we're all dependent on them in one sense. I am too because I really, quite frankly, uh, did not keep up with my biblical languages after I left seminary. I didn't keep up with Greek and Hebrew, and so I never really that great at them anyway. I passed the courses and moved on. So we're dependent on scholars. I'm also dependent on scholars in reading commentaries and other things for unraveling difficult problems. However, the scriptures are essentially clear. You don't really need anything other than scripture in order to resolve what scripture says. Another more complex way of saying that is the perspicuity of scripture, the clarity. The Bible is clear, but not all things in the Bible are equally clear. Is that not true? Some things are clearer than others. Hmm. All right. Thirdly, necessity. Is the Bible necessary? Can we get along without it? The answer is no. The Bible is necessary for our salvation. Without the written word of God, we would die in our sins. Why? Because God ordained it that way. He has put the message of reconciliation on these pages. And it's off of these pages that we preach, we proclaim, we live, we teach, we do our disciple-making and all that. So he has made the scriptures necessary for our salvation. For what purposes is the Bible necessary? And how much can people know about God without the Bible? Are there some things we can know about God without having the Bible? And the answer is yes. We're going to find out what those things are. And then fourthly, sufficiency. Is the Bible enough for knowing what God wants us to think or do? Is the Bible enough? You know something? The sufficiency of Scripture, I think, has come under attack in recent years. Uh, not openly so, but by evangelical churches who, by their practice, deny the sufficiency of Scripture. What do I mean by that? Well, simple exposition of biblical text from the pulpit is not enough. We need anecdotes, entertainment. We need video clips behind the pastor, if possible. Um, you need entertainment. You need other things. And if you don't do those things, your church will not grow. Things will not go well. The sufficiency, sufficiency of Scripture is therefore denied. It's not enough. 
We need to add something to the mix. We need to bring something in and, and include it with Scripture. The Bible would deny this. So these are the four characteristics that Grudem is giving us. Authority, clarity, necessity, and sufficiency. Let's start with the different forms of the Word of God. What are the different forms of the Word of God? He starts where we ended our last uh, section a few moments ago. The Word of God as a person, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the Word of God. And he was the Word of God before there was any written Word of God. He has eternally been the Word of God. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, have existed from time immemorial. Before there was time, there was the Trinity. And so Jesus has always been the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. That means in the beginning of everything, the Word became flesh. And then at the end, you could say that, Revelation 19, it doesn't say that in the text, but at the end, there will be the Word of God. Jesus coming back on a, on a horse with a sword dipped in blood, ready to end the universe. And that's the end the word of God. And so you sum it all up in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Okay, so he speaks to us by his son. Now, when you stop and think about it, what is a word? What is a word? My one-year-old son, Calvin, doesn't have the first idea what a word is. And he's getting along fine without it. But if he continues to be like this at age 20, I'll worry, okay, greatly. Um, and sooner than that, actually. Um, what is a word? Okay, what is communication? Sorry. Okay, here's person one. Right, person two, impartation of knowledge, etc. More than just knowledge, though, feelings, other things. So we're starting with this person, person one, and this person has something that person two doesn't have yet. Right? Concept, an idea, thought, whatever. And so they're going to get meaning across emotion, other things, across. What do we use to do that? Well, at least we use words. We use also tone of voice, facial expressions, and other forms of communication. But a word is a form of communication in which the thing that is going to be communicated gets from one person to the next. God is a person. We are persons after God. We are created in his image, and therefore we can take meaning, we can take passion, emotions, and things from God. But he has to get it to us. You see what I'm saying? And Jesus is his best form of getting it to us. That's what it means when it, he is the word of God. He is the best form there is for getting it to us. What is it? Well, it's himself. It's who he is. His nature, his plans, his purposes, his desires, his the future, his commands. All of those things. And he gets it in word. Now, how do words work? Well, they're a little bit like um, like a train, right? That's the way we do words. There's the choo-choo engine right there. Isn't that fun? Okay. So, you know, word, word, word. It starts here and then goes right through like that. So you have a chugga, 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 chugga thing of, of words, right? That's how we read. That's how we talk. You understand what I'm saying? Chugga, 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 chugga. Yes, okay. Am I communicating? Yes, okay. 
I know it. I, you know, but there it goes, right across. And so uh, I'm, I'm teaching my kids Latin. I'm, we homeschool our kids. And um, the, the thing they're having a hard time with is that word order doesn't really mean anything in Latin. So they have to learn their case endings, all right? But word order is everything in English, you know? The boy hit the mother or the mother hit the boy is a big difference, all right? Absolute big difference. But in Latin, it's all got to do with the case endings. And, but the fact of the matter is, this is how communication works. God has chosen to do this, but his first and greatest form of communication has always been his, his son. So Jesus came first. It's his first form of communication. If, if you look at Hebrews 1.3, what does Hebrews 1.3 say? Somebody, anybody there? It's not on the sheet, but it is? Oh, next page. Huh? All right, what, is, what does Hebrews 1.3 say? The son of the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of the being sustaining all things by his powerful word. Okay. Well, I chose Hebrews 1.3 for that subsection there um, because of the sustaining by his powerful word. And we'll get to that in a minute. But the son is the radiance of God's glory. I've thought a lot about. You look at, at God like... And this is so tough, and this frustrates me with this analogy because I'm thinking of the word S-U-N, sun, right? Now, the sun is a celestial body out in space, 93 million miles away, right? How does it get its stuff to us? What do we get from the sun? Well, we get light and we get radiation, which causes heat. How does it come to us? Well, that's actually a bit of a mystery. It's, it's kind of interesting how it all comes. But basically, here's the sun... I still have no eraser. Somebody remind me to get an eraser next week. But anyway, here's the sun, okay? And here's the earth. How does the sun get its stuff to us? Well, through radiance, through light coming across across 93 million miles of space. This is Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? This is God. This is us. Do you experience the sun apart from light and radiation heat? Do you have any experience of the sun other than from those things? No. That's how the sun gets itself, if we can speak that way, to you. Jesus is that for us. So that when, when Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us, it'd be like us saying, now, sun, you know, S-U-N, please help us experience you without light and heat. And he looks at him and says, you can't. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. That's what I'm here for. If you look at me, you experience me, you believe in me, you walk with me, you've got the Father. If you don't, you've got, you don't have the Father. You can't get to the Father except through me. This is, this is what I'm here for. So the Son is the, the S-O-N, the second person of the Trinity, is God's highest, best form of getting himself to us. Does that make sense? Because words are, I mean, it's really tough to wrap these concepts around words, but here's God and here's us and Jesus brings God right to us. Show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Don't you know me, said Jesus. That's amazing. See what I'm getting at? And so, Jesus is the Word of God. He's the first form of communication and always has been, always will be. He's primary. Yeah. In some way, we're getting the opposite of that with all the, you know, the reductionism and postmodernism. I mean, you're over here at Duke in the English department. I mean, mm. it's almost like you can learn what this is by studying what they do and going the opposite way. Mm. <laughs> yeah. they, just, it, they just tear apart any... That's true. And I think it's, it's a very clever thing that the devil's doing because he understands the importance of language. And so what's the very first thing he says to Eve? Did God really say? So he's working on what? He's working on words there because he knows how important words are in the redemptive history of the world. He knows what's going on there. But uh, he will lose because words will work. And why? Because God's words have power. 
one of the things, uh, the word of God as speech by God, okay? Not only is the second person of the Trinity the word of God, but God's speech is his word, right? His communication out of his mouth, so to speak. We know that God doesn't have literally a mouth, but he communicates this way. God's decrees. God's decrees are powerful words which make things come to pass, right? What's the first decree that we have a record of in the Bible? Well, it's in Genesis 1-3 in which he says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. So we get the word first and then the reality of light second. The word comes first. It just does. That's just an amazing thing. God speaks and then the reality occurs. But that is God's decreeing word. Because he speaks it, it happens. That's the nature of the word of God. He decrees and it is. Yes? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. Okay, Psalm 33.6. Some people say Hebrew, but um, I don't know. Psalm 33.6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all their host by, host by the breath of his mouth. And that's the decreeing word of God. Okay, Hebrews 1.3, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Look at this. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's the decreeing word of Jesus to do what? Sustain. What does sustain mean? Keep it existing. All right, suppose he stops sustaining then. It disappears, right? Does that mean that Jesus was sustaining the nails that were holding up to the cross while he was hanging there? He was sustaining those nails. That's, a, that's an amazing thought. He was keeping them going, keeping their existence going while he's dying on the cross as a result of those nails. An amazing concept. He also He grew the tree and kept the wood together. And he sustained and held Judas's body together too while he was betraying him. I mean, it's a, it's a deep concept, but that's what Hebrews 1.3 is saying. He sustains how many things by the word of his power? All things by the word of his power. That's right. So in him, we live and move and have our being. Instead, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. If he does not will, we will not live. It's that simple. And so God's decrees. Now, God decrees many more things than just creation. These things focus on creation, but he decrees other things too. And we'll talk about that another time. But God decrees things. He says and it is, right? He says and it is. I think it's so wonderful that he likens your salvation to the same thing. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in your hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He spoke into your dark heart, Christ. Isn't that something? That is decreeing power. That's how you get saved. He speaks and you are saved. That's what 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And Paul intended the connection to let there be light. He intended that. He did it on purpose so that we would know. And I think that's why John began his gospel that way in the beginning. I think he wants the connection there. Creation, okay? Secondly, God uses words of personal address. He speaks directly to people. He talks to people. Like what? Well, like he, he makes like nouns and verbs and adjectives. He, he has syntax and grammar. He lowers himself to speech. And he talks to us. He talks to people, like Genesis two sixteen and seventeen. Somebody read that off the page, if you would. 
When the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, so that's speech. He talked. He talked to Adam. And Adam's eardrums vibrated, and he heard. Now, God doesn't need to use air, by the way. He can speak right into your brain. He doesn't need to do it that way. He can speak, and he doesn't even need words. He can just put a concept right in your mind. He can do that. But he also speaks using words, and he also speaks audibly so that people can hear. The Bible is full of all of these forms of communication from God. God speaks directly to people. And how about this one? Exodus 20, verse 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the Ten Commandments, right? The Hebrews call it, or the, uh, the Jews call it, the Ten Words. It was God's speaking to them. He spoke directly to them. Okay? Thirdly, we have God's words as speech through human lips. Oh, what is that? He speaks through the prophets. And so he speaks into the mind of a prophet, and the, and the prophet then draws air into his lungs, and his vocal cords vibrate, and he speaks the word of God. Really, he does that? Yes, he spoke through the prophets. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So he does speak by the prophets. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says that. The uh, first clear indication of that is Deuteronomy 18, 18, in which God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. Do you see that? I will put my words in his mouth is the essence of prophecy. Parenthetically, what is the difference between prophecy and teaching? By, a, by an instrument. We would ordinarily say human, although once it was a donkey. All right, and he can do that, all right? All right, but usually the prophet is a human being, okay? Yes, um, he, basically the essence of prophecy is, I will put my words in his mouth. What is teaching then? What's the difference? It is. It is fallible. Wrong. That's right. So what I'm doing here is I'm taking Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, which is scripture, and I'm talking about it. I'm doing teaching, right? And so we're picking it apart. Brevard? Explaining, working it over. Is it a valid thing? Absolutely. It's part of God's plan for his people. It's just at a lower level of certainty than prophecy. Prophecy is, I will put my words in his mouth. Okay, Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. Jeremiah 1.9 again. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. So Jeremiah was a prophet. He spoke God's word. Okay, fourthly, we have God's words in written form. And what is that? The Bible. We have God's words in written form. Exodus 31.18. When the Lord had finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So why did God want it write, written down? Why did he write it? Why not just speak it all the time, generation after generation? Why the writing? To keep it. It's so true. You know, you look at, at something that's written, and there it is. It just stands there. You know, the shopping list from your wife. And there it was. She asked you to get milk, and you didn't. I mean, it cannot be denied. There it was. You can't argue with it. It's just there. And you did not buy the milk. It's your fault, right? There it is. But you can, you can twist it. You can work with it. You know, you can say now, you know, 
So people do twist scripture. It's just harder to do. And so God wanted a certainty and he wanted a permanence to it, right? And so he commanded that the word of God be written down. Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 26. After Moses had finished writing in a book the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave his, this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. <laughs> okay, that's what its purpose is. It's there to nail you. Well, didn't Jesus say that? Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is who? Moses, on whom your hopes are set. He's not going to save you. He's going to accuse you. Okay, the law doesn't save anybody. Pilgrim's Progress, all that we've been through this. The law isn't going to save you. Sinai doesn't save anybody. Jesus saves. All right. But he wanted it written down, and so the focus of our systematic theology is what form of God's word. What do we zero in on? The written word, not the decreed word, not uh, you know, not not any of these other forms. We're focusing in on the written word, but the written word gives us evidence about the other forms. of. Uh, that's what we're working with in systematic theology, written word. The canon of Scripture, what belongs in the Bible and what does not, and I now have 731. So, mm-mm. Tune in next week when you say. Yeah, it is too big a topic to, to begin lightly with, so we'll talk about it next time. Please, please, please bring these sheets. I will make probably 20 more copies but you don't need to be one of those 20 people, do you? Because you've got this, so bring it next time. Brevard. Uh, I'm not going over Jesus' view of Scripture, but if you did not get a copy of Jesus' view of Scripture, I can give you a copy. But I'm not going over it anymore. If I could also exhort you, um, Acts, the, the whole Acts experience really begins at 6 with prayer. We're really desiring this fall to be more and more a people of prayer. I think especially this upcoming week it's going to be important as we think back to the events of a year ago. September 11th, I believe, is on a Wednesday. And so it might be good for you to come next week at 6 o'clock and join with us in praying uh, for our nation. Have you noticed that the, if we could call it revival of interest in religion after September 11th, popped like a bubble? It didn't really last long. Um, I think it would be important for we who are God's people to come together and pray next week. And then, if you can, make it a habit to join with us in prayer at 6 o'clock on Wednesdays, okay? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this evening and the time we've had uh, to study. Thank you for each of my brothers and sisters that have come here tonight. And God, I pray that you would please uh, help us to revere and respect your word the way Jesus did. Help us to uh, work up to or get to the point in our walk with you that we would rather die than break one of your words, um, that we would rather die than break Scripture. I pray for that, Lord. Lord, we know that we will not make that in our lives because to live perfectly according to your word is to live a perfect life. And that is beyond us because of our weakness and our sin. But yet it is our desire to um, strive for that. So help us to revere and respect your word. Help us to tremble before it. As it says in Isaiah 66, this is the one I esteem, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. I pray, Father, that we would uh, have that respect for your word. Thank you for this time we've had tonight. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians 
make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.